This episode contains an incidence of strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Often, when we discuss the tenets of nonviolence that motivated much of the civil rights movement's early success, our rhetoric can be condescending. And that's easy to do when so few of us have ever had to harden the type of discipline that lets a body stand impotent before abuse. It was like being brainwashed. I hate to say it that way, but you're taught not to defend yourself. I've seen people beaten, I mean severely beaten, watching women being beaten, and, and you're not doing anything. That's Dr. Frederick Leonard. And when he joined the Nashville student movement in the fall of 1960, it was fresh off a stint as a high school organizer, making demands for public integration while exercising self-defense. We didn't have any workshops. No, we were high school students, no colleges. No, there was no black college in Chattanooga. That nonviolence, no, we weren't going for that. But even after years of practicing pacifism, that impulse to fight back was buried, but it wasn't subdued. I knew at the time that Jefferson Street was full of police officers. So I tried to convince everybody that we should set the police station on fire. Can light be projected in front of us, yet we live in so much darkness? Police officers scanning the black lines and white spaces like barcodes, swiping their eyes, searching for one person that's willing to openly defy. Fred Leonard was tired of the cycle. That's poet, hip-hop, and spoken word artist Saran Thompson. Today, he speaks with Dr. Frederick Leonard about the difficulty of conforming to the ideology of a movement, how he came to grapple with the limits of nonviolence as an ideal, and how sometimes keeping focused on the work means accepting that other people will be the ones to reap the benefit. Then Saran takes the down and back again of Dr. Leonard's pacifist journey and turns it into poetry. From Nashville Public Radio, PRX, and the Porch Writers Collective, I'm Joshua Moore. This is Versify. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to support this work, you can make a donation at WPLN.org. My name is Saran Thompson. And my name is Frederick Leonard. If you could tell us a bit about where you're from and then some of your childhood, some of your early background. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. As I mentioned earlier in this series, Nashville was unique among Southern cities, even Southern cities in Tennessee, for its relative political temperance, which is only to say that the outward virulence of racism in the city was marginally less than other more flagrantly racist communities. I think my first experience with racism was I was a little boy and we had a dog. The dog was on the porch with us. I was maybe about seven. The dog catchers came through and made us run the dog off the porch. And when we ran the dog off the porch, they shot him in the yard. And my aunt said, they don't shoot the white people's dogs. So I started kind of understanding what was happening with black and white people. So let me let me ask you, because I'm not familiar, when you say dog catchers... Yeah, what they call them. The people that come around and pick up dogs that's not tagged. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. Was this this a family dog? Yes. Do you remember the name of the dog? No. I was a little boy. I don't remember his name. But I just remember my aunt saying they don't shoot the white people's dogs. Hmm. That's an intense moment. Yeah. (laughs) It was. Freddie said that this happened in front of practically his entire family. 
But of course, there was nothing that any of them could do. And while the experience was scarring, eventually, it just started to feel like a part of the fabric of everyday life. The older I got, I'll, I'll say it like this, like uh, the first time I saw a television, I was, I was maybe about 11, family next door bought a TV and everybody in the neighborhood used to come out and look at the TV and uh, nobody could understand it. Nobody could understand how this picture came through the air and, you know, people in New York and you're looking at them and it was like, this is unbelievable, you can't believe this. Mm-hmm. And I kind of compare that to when I started really understanding racism. It was like that television, it was weird. I couldn't understand why somebody would hate you because of the color mm-hmm. of your skin. Could not understand that. Then later on, as I got a little older, I found out, well, you're not born that way. You're taught that way. It seems like a simple statement, but there's something profound about the connection Dr. Leonard is drawing between the opacity of racism and the mechanics of a television set. Both are commonplace mechanisms whose workings are often inscrutable to the people who interface with them. And while, of course, you can open an instruction manual or a Google tab and discern the operations of either, the compositions of both often go largely uninterrogated. You press a remote and the screen comes on. You move into a neighborhood and the community is unvarying. And perhaps, for a moment, you stop to question how that is. But mostly, you take it as it comes. When I got in high school in 1960, there were demonstrations in North Carolina, and it was on the front page of the paper. Dr. Leonard is referring to the Greensboro sit-ins that began on February 1st, 1960, and were spearheaded by four North Carolina A&T students, Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, Ezel Blair Jr., and David Richmond, the Greensboro Four, as they would come to be known. Their sit-in, which grew from the initial four to more than 1,400 in the span of three days, drew national attention and helped to kickstart a chain of similar demonstrations across the country. And then Nashville had demonstrations. And we, you know, in high school, we see this, and we say, you know, we should do the same thing. And we didn't know anything about nonviolence. And we had no college leadership. We were the only students to demonstrate with no college leadership that was in Chattanooga Howard High School. While Nashville was an inflection point for the civil rights movement during the 60s, it wasn't the only place in Tennessee where black citizens were vying to dismantle segregation. But where in Nashville those efforts were formalized through training and shepherded by clergymen, in communities like Chattanooga, where Dr. Leonard is from, the efforts of student organizers were considerably less rehearsed. And when we went downtown and we would sit at the counter, when they pulled us off those seats, we would fight back. Hmm. We did that like two days, and then the third day, when we went downtown, because we would go after school. And when we got down there, the lunch counters were just closed. Mm-hmm. And they just kept them closed. And they were closed for months. And when they opened back up, they opened up integrated. Oh. Yes. But uh, we didn't, we didn't, that nonviolence, no, we weren't going for that because, you know, we were high school students, mm-hmm. no colleges. You know, there was no black college in Chattanooga. I'd like to learn a little bit more about what was that experience like? If you can remember, like, what are some of the thoughts and feelings that you had in that moment? 
at the time, I think that I was thinking more about what would happen with my mama. You know, is this going to have, will my mama have a problem with, you know, after when, when white people come and attack when they do something to my family? Mm. You know, that was the main fear because we, we didn't know what was going to happen if there would be some night riders come through later on. You know, but at 17 years old, I didn't fear them. Youthful hubris aside, Freddie's worries that a backlash for his activism would land on his family instead of him were with good cause. Because just over the border from Tennessee, in Ringgold, Georgia, about 12 miles from the Chattanooga city limit, in May of that same year, a black couple, Jethro and Maddie Green, had the floor beneath their bedroom detonated for just appearing to be involved in local activism. In the early morning hours of May 19, a cache of dynamite that was hidden beneath the floorboards exploded, splintering the clapboards and pulverizing the house's support beam. Jethro and the couple's 17-month-old son were wounded and managed to escape, but Maddie was caught and crushed beneath falling debris. She died en route to the hospital, which was 15 minutes away. An FBI intelligence report from the investigation indicates that the leader of the Klan in Chattanooga, Jack William Brown, was overheard by a confidential informant boasting about the bombing just three days later, referring to the event as a, quote, good job. It's believed, though a clear motive was never discerned, that the Greens were targeted because of a perceived effort to found a chapter of the NAACP in Ringgold. And while no such effort or affiliation was ever unearthed, an investigation by the Catoosa County Sheriff did find that Green was a member of a religious singing group that practiced at one another's houses, the site of which, black men having regular gatherings in a small Georgia town, was enough to stoke a rumor about budding activism. And meanwhile, in Chattanooga, just 12 miles across the border from where Maddie Green was killed, sit-ins had been occurring that same week. There were so many people that wanted to kill us just because we were asking for citizenship, you know, just just plain old citizenship. And I I just can't understand, at at least at that time, I couldn't understand why black men had gone to Korea and then came back and were subjected to the racial hatred and didn't do anything about it. It took the younger generation Hmm. It took us. So for you and your peers, what was the dynamic like with your family? I I think the whole thing with them was don't get in trouble. Hmm. You know, you know your place. I guess don't rock the boat. But for Freddie and a steadily increasing minority of young people across the country, the balance of that vessel had already begun to shift. And when he left Chattanooga to start his freshman year of college, Freddie went in search of other so-called troublemakers who were helping to drive that momentum forward. When I came to Nashville, I looked for the people in the civil rights movement. And when I was in Chattanooga, we were at a segregated high school, so I didn't go to school with any white people, didn't know any white people. Mm -hmm. But when I came here and I got, got involved in the civil rights movement in Nashville, And I saw white people who were willing to lay down their lives. That changed me. Mm. 
I mean, you know, I, I started looking at white people differently in a way, you might say, because like Jim Swerg, and there was uh, two girls at Scarrett, Sue Wilbur and Sue Herman. Those white girls were dedicated and they were willing to give up their lives for black people. Did you have a lot of personal interaction with these three individuals? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to, if you don't mind, tell me about some of the interactions with, with Jim and, and the Sues. Jim Swerve, he was like, he was on the front line. Sue Wilbur, Sue Herman, they, it was like, I just can't, I, I can't really say how they felt, how, how they must have felt and how their families felt about them. Mm. But, but as far as we were concerned, I mean, they, they acted just like we were their actual blood kin. Mm-hmm. You know, like the black students in the movement, but like we were blood kin to them. Mm-hmm. It's like they didn't look at all like, well, I'm white and you're black, even though you know you recognize that. You know, it's obvious. Yeah. But, but it's like they loved us. They, they loved us, mm-hmm. and they were willing to do anything, whatever it, whatever it would take, whatever they were willing. Beyond the novelty of finding genuine allies in some of the members of the white community, there were other adjustments to the Nashville movement that took some getting used to. It kind of messed me up when I first came because, like I said, I didn't understand nonviolence. And um, I went to a meeting, and John Lewis and Bernard Lafayette, James Bevel, they were all up talking about, if you want to be a part of this movement, you must be nonviolent. We will not tolerate any violence. I started to walk out the door. But I, you know, deep down inside, I, I knew that segregation was such an evil system. I wanted to be a part of changing it. Mm-hmm. So I got involved. And we asked Dr. Leonard what that transition was like from being a high school student able to instinctively react to the violence against him to actively suppressing those reflexes. Well, it's a, it's a discipline that I don't ever want to know again. It was it was like, like like being brainwashed. You know, I'd hate to say it that way, but but anytime you're you're taught not to defend yourself, that's that's difficult. I've seen people beaten, I mean severely beaten. How do you how do you stand by and watch that without being bothered inside? They got some kind of courage out of beating us because they knew we would not fight back. And one thing that uh, the preacher would say, that it's almost like a death sentence to you if you fight them back. Because, you know, they get, they have a reason now to kill you. The, the, the police do. The police have some reason to kill you if you fight back. We start having sit-ins. We were having sit-ins at uh, McClellan's and Kresge's, uh, Crystal, a restaurant downtown called TikTok. I got arrested down there. Morrison Cafeteria, Cross Keys Cafeteria. We had all these sit-ins at different restaurants. And after, after they finally decided that 
that uh, well, we need to give in. I think economic boycotts had a lot to do with that. By the early 1960s, because of the increased suburbanization of Nashville's surrounding communities, downtown businesses were primarily patronized by black Nashvillians. And in a show of solidarity with the student movement, black patrons refused to shop at businesses with segregationist policies, a move which dramatically reduced those businesses' revenue and helped to accelerate integration efforts across the city. When it comes to a lot of the various forms of the different ways that y'all chose to protest, what was the process like of organizing? Can you can you explain more on that? I think it was a matter of the preachers. I guess they were church leaders, so they knew how to lead people. And they just more or less put us all together and told us, this is what we have to do and this is the way we have to do it. Hmm. And that's what we did. We had workshops, and the workshops sometimes would be real tense. Sometimes in the workshop, you want to fight. Mm. You know, like, man, you didn't have to throw me on the floor. Or, you know, and they say, well, that's what's going to happen to you when you go downtown to the lunch counter. Mm. You know, this is what's going to happen. So y'all would kind of act out yeah. some of the scenarios. Mm-hmm. That's what we did. Were there yeah. a lot of people that buckled under the pressure? Most people did. Mm-hmm. Most people did not. Most people did not participate in the civil rights movement. Most black people didn't. Mm. They were not going for it. Most black people said, "No, I am not going to be nonviolent." You beat me enough doing slavery. Uh, uh-uh, uh, no. Mm. I mean, it was a, a discipline that was. It was something. I mean, you know, just imagine you sitting next to a girl. And here this white man come, and they put a cigarette light out, well, put a cigarette out on her. And when I came up, your mama told you, don't let anybody mess with your sister. Mm-hmm. It was like a rule. You don't mess with the women in the family. And then you in a situation where you see the women being snatched, pulled by the hair and dragged across the floor and kicked and spit on you know, and, and then you tell them, the ones who's doing this, I love you. You know, that's that, that's that indoctrination from those preachers, mm-hmm. you know, because they had us thinking that these, we're going to get to these people's hearts and we're going to, you know, we're going to make them realize that we are humans and we are their brothers and we love them and they will eventually love us. But that didn't happen. They changed the laws, but they didn't change their hearts. Perhaps a perfect example of this is how Nashville and the nation's policies changed around segregation in schools, mandating equal access to resources on paper, but in reality, often being circumvented by families moving out of district or opening private institutions. But at that point in Nashville, at least on the lunch counter front, their efforts were having an effect. And they did give in, but the theaters were still segregated. Mm. So we, those were our next targets. I remember an incident at the Tennessee Theater on Church Street where we were supposed to go up and ask for a ticket. Of course, we would be denied. And when we were denied, then we would turn around, go back to the back of the line and, you know, whoever else would go up. And so I decided I was not going to move from the window. If there were white people that would come up to the window, of course, I decided I'm going to stay right there at that window. John Lewis, I told John, I said, John, I'm not moving. 
won't stay right here. And uh, the police officer came up and told me and said, keep moving. I won't move. So he pulled his billy stick out and hit me side the head and put a big old knot on my head. They took me to the hospital. And when they were taking me to the hospital, this guy named Leroy Wright, he said, <laughs> he told me because he, he, I was a little guy, I weighed 147 pounds. He told me, he said, I'm going to get that motherfucker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was in the hospital about 20 minutes and Leroy Wright came in the hospital with a knot on his head. <laughs> <laughs> It was 1961, and that's when the Freedom Rides started. John left here to go on the Freedom Rides. And um, when that bus was burning Aniston, Freedom Rides were over. And John came back here, and we decided right here in Nashville, that's not over. Freddie, along with Alan Kaysen and Etta Ray, was in the second group of students to leave Nashville and still choosing not to heed the advice of his family that he not rock the boat, Freddie and the other Freedom Riders set out into choppy water. And we went to Birmingham, and uh, for some reason, they did not arrest us in Birmingham. They actually let us sit on the white, in the white side of the, of the bus terminal. They let us sit there. But while we were there, the Ku Klux Klan walked through, just walked straight through the bus terminal. And, you know, we're thinking there's going to be something happening here. But nothing happened. They let us get on the bus to Montgomery. And I guess they all knew what was going to happen in Montgomery. And when we got to Montgomery, oh, man, they tried to kill us. It was like they thought we were coming to steal their children or something. The events in Montgomery were a critical turning point for the Freedom Rides. Beyond shoring up support among the civil rights movement's senior leadership, it shifted the attitudes of the Kennedy administration from passive irritation to active assistance. Because Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man, John Siegenthaler, had been caught in the fray, the carnage in Montgomery had garnered the outrage of the attorney general. And though it had taken the beating of countless freedom riders and the bludgeoning of one federal agent to accomplish it, the tide of executive sentiment toward the movement finally began to shift. And the white people, Sue Herman and Sue Wilbur, Jim Swerve, all of us, they, they were on the bus with us. I, I guess you've seen the pictures of Jim Swerve beating. He, he took the worst beating in, in Montgomery. But it was something about white people helping us that white people did not like. They just did not like that at all. They called them nigger lovers. This fact about the concentration of white hate towards white activists reminds me of a detail from ta Coates' Between the World and Me about the fragility of whiteness as a construct and how, without the investment of its beneficiaries maintaining it, it would collapse. And that perhaps the ones best able to expose those fault lines are white people themselves. After that, Massacre, I guess you might say. We came back to Nashville and got on another bus, we, you know, because the destination was New Orleans. We got on another bus, and we, we decided we were not going to get off the bus until we got to Jackson, Mississippi, 
you know, Mississippi and South Carolina had the worst reputation. Mm -hmm. So we're expecting the worst in Mississippi. And when we got to Mississippi, we didn't see any, you know, like a mob that we were expecting to see. We didn't see it. But we saw lots of police officers. And when we got off the bus, they let us go into the bus terminal and they said, keep going, just keep moving. And so we just kept moving. And when we went out the other side of the bus terminal, the paddy wagon was outside waiting for us. And they just took us straight on to jail. And then the next day we went to court. And then the day after that, we went to the state penitentiary. Whoa. Yeah. We were sentenced to 60 days and a $500 fine in the state penitentiary. But but the violence that occurred in in uh, Alabama didn't happen in Mississippi. Ross Barnett had made sure that that didn't happen. Though the outlook of the Kennedy administration was shifting, a more primary focus was limiting the fallout around the country's image abroad by preventing any further bouts of violence. And so, instead of throwing their weight behind the Freedom Rides and enforcing the Supreme Court's decision in Boynton v. Virginia, which gave travelers the legal right to disregard local ordinances regarding interstate transportation, the Kennedys cut a deal with Mississippi's Governor Ross Barnett, enabling him to arrest the Freedom Riders and neglect that ruling. But despite their best attempts to staunch it, the flow of Freedom Riders into Mississippi persisted. What happened was, People start coming from everywhere. And and the thing is, when they found out that there wouldn't be any violence, people start coming. They they were liberal people, they were liberal white people, but they didn't come they didn't come during the time that they had to face the violence. Mm-hmm. They came after that was over. The sudden increase in new prisoners overwhelmed Parchman's capacity to hold them. So out of necessity, Freedom Riders started to be released well in advance of their sixty day sentences. But for Freddie and 13 other of the writers who enrolled at Tennessee A&I, that excitement over reduced prison time was short-lived. So when I came back, well, I, was, I was expelled. Being expelled from school, that was, that was something that just kind of like hurt my mama. Freddie and the other students had fallen subject to a law which had been specifically created to entrap them. As the downtown sit-ins gained traction the previous year, the Tennessee legislature drafted and passed a bill directly targeting the student protesters, which was promptly signed and written into law by then-Governor Buford Ellington, himself a sworn segregationist. The law was supposed to govern student behavior. You know, that was after the sit-in started. And what the law was really saying is, if you challenge our system of segregation, we will kick you out of our school, out of our state schools. Were there any moments that happened that made you contemplate quitting and just walking away from the movement? No. Hmm. No. Never. That's good. While his expulsion didn't diminish Freddie's passion for the cause, he acknowledged that During his time in Mississippi, his perspective on their methods had started undertaking a shift. And much of that change in worldview was attributable to one of the other students on the rides. But I will admit that I evolved into kind of a violent person during the movement. Stoker Carmichael was my cellmate in Mississippi. And 
Snorkeling was full of Malcolm X. We have to recognize who our major enemy is. The major enemy is not your brother, flesh of your flesh, and blood of your blood. The major enemy is the hunky and his institutions of racism. That's the major enemy. That is the major enemy. There were so many overt contradictions in the country. You were sending black men to fight in Vietnam for freedom and democracy from Montgomery, Alabama, and they couldn't even go downtown to a stupid five and ten cent store. We always want to prove what good Americans we are. The very first man to die for the War of Independence in this country was a black man named Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks. He was a fool. Stokely Carmichael, later Kwame Ture, was a firebrand of the civil rights movement. A brilliant and charismatic speaker who, like Freddie, became increasingly disillusioned with the tenets of nonviolence after seeing his fellow protesters repeatedly brutalized to seemingly no end. He eventually became a champion of the Black Power movement and the idea of Black Power as an ideology, a concept that while seemingly still as poorly understood today as it was then, was rooted in considerably more than cries for militant black resistance. It means black people coming together and using their energies and making a power base to do what they have to do in order to assure their liberation. When he first said black power, oh, white people started running, what are you talking about? What are you talking about black power? What is black power? You know, of course he was talking about economic and political power. But they couldn't get to it then, you know, what, what, black power, what is that? Why are you talking about black power? But he, uh, Stokely, ended up being the chairman of SNCC, like, kind of like pushed John Lewis out, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of pushed John Lewis out, and he ended up being the char- ch- chairman of SNCC. And he brought, he brought violent tendencies with him. He was, you know, no more of this nonviolent stuff. Mm. No, I'm just not going to get it. And in a way, I kind of understand it because the non- nonviolent movement say, like in 1960, okay, you're getting beat, beaten, thrown in jail, integrate the lunch counters. Next year, same thing, beaten, thrown in jail, integrate the uh, theaters. Next year, beaten, thrown in jail, they have to re- integrate the toilets. You know, that, that kind of stuff, you know, a little step like that where Stoker said, uh-uh, no. No, no. Violence. We'll burn this thing down. Say, if we can't have, if we can't have part of it, you can't have none of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that was his thing. <laughs> that was Stokely. After their time together in Mississippi, Stokely and Freddie grew closer. As Freddie was further influenced by Stokely's ideology, he began to shift his tactics as a demonstrator towards more radical forms of opposition. A trend which drew to a head for Freddie in 1967 during a riot on Jefferson Street. Stokely was back in Nashville to speak at several of the local colleges, including Fisk, TSU, and Vanderbilt. And on the same night of his speech on Vandy's campus, just hours after he'd addressed a group of students at Fisk, a standoff began to form between the students of North Nashville and the police over the arrest of a black GI at one of the local restaurants. The tense scene eventually erupted into a riot. I was in wait for the Tennessee. I didn't know anything about the riots, and I came home, and the police had my house around it. And they were looking for Stokely, and I'm surprised. You know, I don't even know what's happening. But the next night, I was arrested. Like about six or seven of us, we had a, a car loaded with Molotov cocktails. I had 
totally forgotten our violence. They were staying on, on the past then. What we had in, intended to do was burn this store out on the corner of 40th and uh, Clifton. But uh, we had somebody that was with us who was an informant. And uh, I knew at the time that Jefferson Street was full of police officers. So I tried to convince everybody that we should not go out there to burn that store, that we should set the police station on fire. And this, this guy named Lewis Miller was in the car with us, and he kept saying, no, 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 no. Our plan is to go to Belize and, and burn Belize. So everybody said, all right, we'll, we'll stick to the plan. And when we got out there, the police was out there, and they arrested all of us, charged us with unlawful transportation and possession of explosives and attempted arson. All of us except Lewis, they charged him with loitering. At that time, I was strictly 100% Stokely Carmichael. I mean, violence was in me then. So during Ron Stokely, you, you couldn't help, but it just rubbed off on you. And, and, and like I said, he was smart and, and he could influence you. And, and I'm thinking, well, this is really good. This man here is going to change everything. Stokely is going to change this country. I, I, I evolved into a violent man. And I'm, I'm sure that some of the other people you talk to, they'll tell you the same thing, that I, I end up being a violent person in the, in the, in the movement. And it was the, same, the thing that got me more than anything was seeing the women beaten. In, in, inside, you never forget about that. You can't forget it. Hmm. And it, it bothered you all your life. And that's why I ended up in Detroit. They let us out of jail. Uh, the uh, Human Relations Council talked the police in, talked the city into letting us out of jail on our own recognizance. And, and the next day, I was in Detroit. And the thing never did go to court. Freddie spent the next 10 years of his life in Detroit, initially working on a Chrysler assembly line, but eventually going into business making Picel Afro combs. You know, those little black picks aptly bedecked with a raised black fist on top. Those are Picels. He went into the business with Paul Brooks, another student from the Nashville movement who'd landed in Detroit. And Freddie eventually ended up purchasing the company. The latter part of his life was considerably tamer than his time in the movement. He eventually settled down, married twice, had kids, and at some point returned to live in Nashville. And thinking on the arc of his experiences, Saran asked Dr. Leonard what part of his legacy he's most satisfied with. Looking at the grand scope, both then and now, through everything that you've experienced, good, bad, and ugly, what would you say will probably be the, a moment that makes you the most proud? It would have to be Obama. Why so? <laughs> Say, why so? Yeah, tell me, what did, what did Obama do for I mean, just you? His, just, yeah. just his election, just because that's something that I never thought would happen. Mm. Even when, when, he, when he started, I, I, I thought, I said, no, this is not going to happen, not in this country. It's not going to happen. And it happened, and it happened twice. 
Do you remember where you were in that moment when you received the news? I was watching TV. I was, I was up watching. <laughs> yep. Yep. Watching that, that television, I still don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> there are many, particularly those who hope for and expect more radical accountability from our government, that would caution against indulging the symbolic victory of President Obama's election. And while that cautioning and critique is legitimate, it does not reduce the fact that Barack Obama's election evidenced more than token symbolism. That, however incomplete, it was a culmination of the ambition and the striving of centuries of Black Americans, like Dr. Leonard, who fought so that the structures and the legacies of this nation would necessarily reflect and include them. But Dr. Leonard is not naive, and he acknowledged that in many ways, the country has reverted to the state of things as they were in the 1960s. I know that, that what we did, we brought about a lot of changes, but in a, in a way, we've done like a 360. And when you do a 360, what do you do? You start here, end up back in the same place. If the schools have resegregated, they, they're segregated again, the schools are. Mm-hmm. Mass incarceration, voter suppression law. You know, I mean, it's like we're back in the same place where we started. And that awareness is something Dr. Leonard is working to impart to his kids, who for their part are also grappling with how to address the legacy of this country. My youngest daughter said that she feels bad for me because I lived during that time. She wishes that my life would have been easier, mm-hmm. that uh, I would not have had to deal with the discrimination as it is right now. And I tell her, well, you know, her name is Inaya. I say, Inaya, you know, it's just as bad now as it was then. They just don't have the signs up, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Part of the reason we embarked on this season is because we're interested in the legacy of the Freedom Riders' work and what it potentially means for another generation of activists to still be having to push the needle forward and what the best means for that continuation might be. I would say just try to be strong mentally because what happened to us, like some of us who who had see psychiatrists, get control of your mental state and do, do not let the pressure get to you where you have a breakdown where it start to start messing with your mind. Be strong that when you see that your work is not really being taken advantage of, you've got to still be mentally strong and don't let it get to, to where you're just ready to just say, throw your hands up and just give up. you just got to keep going. you got to keep going because somebody will take advantage of it. Somebody will take advantage of your hard work. When we come back, we'll hear more from Saran about his thoughts on the conversation and see how he translates the evolution of Frederick Leonard's activism into poetry. This is Versify. In the 1960s, Rip Patton joined a movement of students protesting segregation, from sit-ins in Nashville to the Freedom Rides down to Mississippi, where he was thrown in prison. If you don't stop singing, we're going to take your mattress. 
They opened the gate. We threw the mattresses out in the hallway. That didn't stop us from singing. Ain't gonna let no mattress turn me around. I talked to Rip about being a disruptor and to dozens of other fascinating people about why they do what they do. Listen to these conversations on Movers and Thinkers from Nashville Public Radio. Find it on your podcasting app or at podcasts.wpln.org. I think it can be seductive to look at the civil rights movement through the easy binary of right versus wrong action. And that's certainly the narrative that we're taught. Martin versus Malcolm, Carmichael versus Lewis, the Black Panthers versus the Montgomery bus boycotts. But I think that the truth of the matter is that sometimes the means change. And that maybe as situations evolve, the methods of resistance will evolve with them. Somewhere halfway through the conversation, he instantly transported me back to a conversation I was having with one of my colleagues. She gave this this strong point where she was like, you know, you have to be light in this world. Which I'm like, okay, we've all heard like a million times. But then she continues and she's like, but you have to understand that light is violent. Light doesn't light up a space peacefully because you are actively fighting against darkness. Like it is an active battle. The second that light gives up, the second that light turns off, it is instantly engulfed. Hearing that and then understanding that in order to be this light that everyone wants to, you know, boldly claim and self-identify with is the fact is that you immediately accept the call into resiliency and to fight. And sometimes it can feel like a thankless job. You know, you're not the one that's going to reap the fruit, so to speak, of your work and your endeavors. And it's like, we just going to keep moving. You know, we see work happening and we just keep going. And if I have to dedicate my life to it, then so be it. So the poem is called Change in HD. Television is education, entertainment, excitement, suspense, horror, mystery, love, inspiration, all at the flip of a switch or the push of a button or a verbal command to Alexa, depending on when you've lived. You twist the knob, click, click, and get light emitting from a box. Adjust the long insect-like antenna to get a better picture of the world, whether 4K, HD, 1080p, it's all innovation emerging from black and white. Separate and yet necessary to create the whole picture. During the time of segregation, color separation, the TV had it right. Black and white together creates a beautiful picture. Freddie Leonard once said, there are two things I don't understand. Racism and television. After all, how can light be projected in front of us, yet we live in so much darkness? Change the channel. White men shooting a black family's dog on the front lawn. Change the channel. Black teens tuned into the station of liberation. 
occupying lunch counters, attempting to order equality with a side of justice, fully prepared to pay the race tax for being black and white spaces, change the channel, black people organize, working to make it to the big screen. But first, we must desegregate movie theaters, Tennessee theater, stand in line to be denied, then move to the back, rinse and repeat until defeat was no longer in their eyes. Police officers scanning the black lines and white spaces like barcodes, swiping their eyes, searching for one person Person that's willing to openly defy. Fred Leonard was tired of the cycle. Standing at the front, mind you, nonviolence versus violence, when only one side can fight, you have to get active, be prepared, join the team, while you get beat with billy clubs or you can change the channel, staying ahead of the times after theaters and lunch lines, hotels are next. Sleep-ins and lobbies like changing the world is a full-time hobby of an activist. Tune in next time for how they changed the channel 1961, Bus Rides for Freedom. Brave Souls has seen the description of this program but decided to change this station's story by going against the network. They loaded up on buses over and over, understanding that the violence would be cyclical like a rerun of a sitcom, but they couldn't sit calmly with tires slash abandoned by their escorts and police, enter the Klan with pipes, bike chains, and firebombs, as if violence could extinguish the fire of peaceful protests. This smothered flame reignited with more buses and freedom rides, an explosion of desegregation that sparks the means to survive. Even with the intent to kill them or to let them burn like charred hull of a Greyhound bus or to burn like bridges, hate could not see how they were escaping through a back door, a blown window. What they were building was a highway to. Sometimes it's hard to communicate the vision through all the white noise when they want you to keep them in suspense like a cliffhanger. Racism will never get the satisfaction or know the taste of victory via violence because we will always rise and change the channel for the world to see the bigger picture. It took bodies locked in Mississippi State Pen and then from all over the nation, white activists and advocates came in to rally, ally, occupy and support. Filled the prison until it was bursting at the seams. Forced the hands of those in power with pressure until they were forced to release. The freedom riders who continue to change the channel. We are all light. Even if you feel stuck inside a box like a television, shine. The darkness around you can never dim your light's potential. And a working television must be plugged into the source to function. Freedom Riders, perfect personification that actions will be seen, heard, felt, and victory will be savored. We are not born racist, but programmed. We feed our souls through our eyes and our ears. This is synthesized in our hearts and then it manifests through our hands and mouths as actions. With the power of life or death at the tip of our tongues, speak wisely. Speak wisely. You may never know how you may change the channel. See, change is a cycle. And if we sit back and only watch, click, click, turning the knob too many times, click, click, and change the channel too often, we ultimately do a 360. We end up exactly where we started. Don't take the plight of the past for granted. To see the future in HD to bring a crystal clear picture to life, we must continue to build 
on every pixel of freedom. Oh, tears to my eyes, man. Man, you good. Thank you. <laughs> wow. It's like I, I can't believe that you could take what I said and make something that special. I mean, you know, I, I felt something when you were talking. I mean, it was like, and I was going back to the time. It's just something it's special. It's something that needs to be heard by more than me. Versify is a production of Nashville Public Radio and The Porch, which trains our poets and host our storytelling events. This season of Versify is brought to you in partnership with Choral Arts Link and the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Special thanks to Margaret Campbell Holman, Kellyanne Bell, Joshua Randall, and Kimberly McLemore, who helped make these conversations a reality. Editing for this episode came from WPLN's Mac Limeball, with additional editing from Anita Buck. The episode was written, recorded, and produced by me. Joshua Moore. Audio for this episode was sourced from the interviews and speeches of Kwame Ture. The episode was mastered by Mac Limeball. Versify is distributed by PRX. And tune in again to hear the beauty of how we can turn your life into poetry, one verse at a time. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.